Let's pray. Father God, it's true that every one of us here who are now believers uh, were once chasing after a hellbound race. We, we were looking for everything that we wanted, all of our pleasures, everything that pleased only us, and yet we found that it led us away from you and led us uh, to a place of judgment, and yet you intervened, you stepped in, you, you interjected yourself when we were least expecting it, and you saved us, and you rescued us, and now we sing, all I have is Christ. All, that's the only uh, entrance into heaven that I have. That's the only possession uh, that would bring me into a right relationship with you is Christ and his finished work. And so this morning we praise you for that, we worship you, and we celebrate it in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to read the first two verses, which is the opening, the greeting of Paul as he writes to this church from a prison cell, and nonetheless, and the things that he has to say to them even as he begins this wonderful letter. Ephesians chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Follow along as I read. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, it, I, I am extremely excited to return home this morning, and by that I mean return to uh, an expository study of the book of the Bible. Uh, over the summer, we took a couple series to go through kind of some topical things. One, we uh, looked at suffering and, and that sort of series, and then most recently, we went through Hoosier One uh, as a missions evangelistic type of focus. And while those things are necessary and those things have a lot of value for our edification, my wheelhouse, my, my joy, my delight is to walk through a book of the Bible verse by verse. If you've been part of Bethel for any amount of time, you're going to begin to notice something. If you show up for Sunday school, uh, whether you are a child or adult, you will be taught the Word of God. If you stick around for the worship service, you will be taught the Word of God. If you show up here for a midweek service or you sign up to be in a life group or a come to a purity weekend, you will be taught the Word of God. That's our part and parcel around here. That's what we do. Uh, we teach and preach God's Word. If we fail in that, then we have nothing. We could create as many programs as we wanted uh, we could have as many children's activities as we wanted. We could support as many missionaries as we wanted. But if we are not teaching God's word, we might as well close up shop and all go home and just eat donuts. Praise the Lord, we don't do that. We study together. We learn together. Our goal is to study God's word so that we know him and that we can grow in our relationship to him, with him. So this morning, we are going to begin our study through the book of Ephesians. This letter to the Ephesians is one of the most influential documents in the Christian church. It has been called by some 
the crown of St. Paul's writings. Others have considered it the quintessence, the ultimate of Paulinism. Everything he wrote could be summarized here. Even more have said this. They've said, Ephesians is among the greatest letters under the name of the Apostle Paul. Other than the book of Romans, no other book of Paul receives as broad of accolades as does the book of Ephesians. And so we're going to dive into this book over the next several weeks, months, years, I don't know. We'll see. Um, But before we do, uh, I I think it's important for us to have a broad overview. And so this morning, I've just titled this Ephesians, an Introduction. We need to know what we're getting into because it is easy to jump into the book of Ephesians and start looking at particular words, particular phrases, start picking them apart and miss the bigger picture of the whole letter. And so I've laid out this introductory sermon in four parts. You can see them there in your message notes if you pull them out. Four parts that we'll look at this morning. The beauty of the book of Ephesians the bearings, we'll get our bearings uh, as we head into this book. The beneficiaries, who is this letter to and why is that important? And then finally, the blessings that Paul begins to describe even as he opens up this letter, which we will dig into then in future sermons. So let's start with the beauty of the book of Ephesians. The beauty of Ephesians is this. There is a grand theme that runs through this entire letter. There are lots of sub-themes, and we'll look at those in a second, but there is this grand theme that runs through the letter, and that theme is this. What God planned before the foundation of the universe, he accomplished in the work of his son Jesus, and he is carrying out that accomplishment through the ministry of the Holy Spirit as he builds a people for himself. That's what we call the church that hails a new kingdom with a new king, with new kingdom values and new kingdom virtues, all to the praise and the glory of God the Father. That's the grand theme that moves through this book. That theme starts all the way back in the book of Genesis, ends in the book of Revelation, but Paul summarizes it right here, and it affects the way we see ourselves, the way we see our world, and the way we see our God. Attached to that grand theme of God, the Trinity, working out this plan, in this book, you're going to see a lot of sub-themes. Let me give you some. There are themes of love and unity that walk through this book. There are themes of riches and blessing that we find contained in this book. Further, there are themes of mystery and wonder. That word mystery shows up all throughout the the book of Ephesians, this unfolding plan of God. All of these find their place under that broad theme of God's work in redemptive history to save you and I. The book of Ephesians is laid out in two parts. And so if you have the book open, you'll see this. There are six chapters in the book of Ephesians split evenly between these two characteristics. Chapters 1 through 3 describe the believer's wealth. The verbs in chapters 1 through 3 are in what we call the indicative tense. They're indicating something. 
they describe what is. They describe a reality. They describe what's fixed. They describe what's true, what's been accomplished, and what stands accomplished. We call these truths in chapters 1 through 3 positional truths. You are positioned in this new kingdom. Chapters 4 to 6 describe the believer's walk. Okay, so 1 through 3 are the believer's wealth. Chapters 4 through 6 are the believer's walk. The verbs in chapters 4, 5, and 6 are in what we call the imperative tense. They're, they're commands. They describe what should be, what ought to be, the instructions, the orders of the new kingdom. We call these practical truths. So we have positional truths, chapters 1 through 3, and then practical truths, how you live out that position, you will see in chapters 4, 5, and 6. That order, 1, and, one 2, and 3, 4, 5, and 6, is of utmost importance. If you jump into Ephesians at chapters 4, 5, and 6, Without understanding one, two, and three, you will end up in a place of legalism. Because chapters four, five, and six just simply say what to do. But if you don't understand the why and how to accomplish that and what's already been accomplished, you will end up with legalism and self-righteousness. Some of you may have grown up in churches or in upbringings where you only heard sermons from chapters 4, 5, and 6. And it makes sense. We want to know how to live it. We want to know what to do. But before we learn the how, we need to learn the who. Who you are in Christ. What God has accomplished on your behalf. That's the beauty of the book of Ephesians. You understand your riches in Christ and then you learn how to live that out, your riches and your blessings in practice. How many of you ever have heard of a lady named Hetty Green? Does the name strike uh, familiarity? She was uh, dubbed America's greatest miser. She was also called the Witch of Wall Street. And when she died in 1916, Hetty Green left behind an estate valued at over $100 million in those days. Today, that would be worth somewhere between 2 and $3 billion. But did you know that for her entire life, Hetty Green ate cold oatmeal because she thought it cost too much to heat it up? Her son suffered a leg amputation because she delayed so long trying to look for a free clinic to work on his leg. Uh, in fact, when she died, she actually hastened her own death because she got into an argument with a nurse. After she had had a stroke, she was arguing with the nurse about the benefits of drinking skim milk, and she died quicker than she should have. Hetty Green, $100 million dollars she had all of the riches of the world, and she lived like a pauper. Sadly, that is an illustration of many people in their Christian life. Because you and I have untold spiritual wealth, and yet often we live like paupers. 
And it is for this reason that Paul writes the book of Ephesians so that you understand how rich you are spiritually in Christ so that your life radically changes. That's the beauty of the book of Ephesians. I challenge you over the next week to go back and read through the book of Ephesians. If you read one chapter per day, you'll be ready for next week. You'll have read through the whole uh, book, and you'll begin to see the beauty of the riches of Jesus described uh, in the life of a believer. So that's kind of the beauty of this book. Uh, let's get our bearings straight. Let's kind of figure out what's going on here. This book was written by the Apostle Paul. If you look the very first word, uh, in, in those days, the writer of the letter signed their name first. So this is the Apostle Paul. If you know anything about his life, you know that he was previously called what? What was his name before? Saul, right? Before he came to know the Lord, he was known by the name of Saul. Um, this man, Paul, or, or Saul, was of the tribe of Benjamin, and his mom probably named him Saul because Saul was the first king of Israel, the most prominent Benjamite uh, in the Israeli nation, and so likely that's where he got his name. Um, but Paul slash Saul spent his life studying the law. He studied under the famed Rabbi Gamaliel, and he became well-known in circles for his wisdom, this, this Paul guy. He ascended the ranks of the Pharisees, and he was at the highest of ranks. In fact, he likely was even on the elite leadership team uh, known as the Sanhedrin. And here's what's fascinating about this guy. When Saul became an apostle to the Gentiles, his name changed from Saul to Paul. Do you know what the name Paul means? It means small. Small. Paul, Saul went from this big personality, this ego, this huge influence in terms of practicing the law, ravaging the church, cursing this magnanimous, is that a word? He was a huge influence to the small. He was brought small by God. And God used this small man in all of his weakness to become one of the greatest missionaries the world has ever known. He became a powerhouse for the spread of the gospel. In the end, God was big and Paul was small. It reminds me of John the Baptist when John the Baptist says, he must increase and I must decrease. That was Paul. That's the guy who, who wrote this letter. He's an apostle, okay? He identifies himself as an apostle. There are only 14 men in the history of mankind that bear the title apostle uh, with a capital A. The original 12 disciples uh, were apostles. Of course, later, Judas Iscariot committed suicide, and so he was replaced by Matthias, we read in, in Acts chapter 1. And then much later comes along Paul. Paul says that he was one who was untimely born. He was a bit of an exception uh, to the rule. So there were 14 apostles. These apostles no longer exist. But when they did exist, they had a special purpose, and that was they were to preach the gospel. They were to teach and to pray. They were to work miracles. They were to build up other leaders in the church, and they were to write the word of God. Once the canon of Scripture had been completed, 
the era of apostles ceased. In fact, later in this book, in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 20, Paul says that the church is built on the foundation, singular, the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ himself being the cornerstone. Once that foundation is laid, we don't need another foundation. There's only one foundation. It was built on the apostles, and the prophets, now we begin erecting the walls and the roof and, and so on. So the office of apostle ceased after Paul. But by identifying himself in this way to the church, it brings a lot of authority. He writes as one with authority to the Ephesians. However, if you notice, go back to verse 1. Not only does he write with the authority of an apostle, but he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus... By the will of God. By the will of God. This office was not something that Paul went looking for. It, was, it wasn't as though he aspired for it. In fact, he was adamantly opposed to Jesus all of his life growing up to this point. He was a murderer. He was an insolent man. But on the road to Damascus, as Paul was carrying out the orders to go to that city and hack down the believers or bring them back to prison, Christ Jesus intervened. He appeared in this brilliant light, so bright it knocks Paul off of his horse. It blinds him when he encountered the Lord, and it was at that moment that Paul experienced salvation. And from that moment on, he began studying, learning about Jesus, being convinced that Jesus was the Christ and then became the greatest missionary of all time. So here is this Paul now writing this letter on the authority vested to him as an apostle as well as the authority vested to him by God himself. So we should pay attention when he writes this book. He writes to, he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. We'll come back to that word saints here in, in just a moment, but let's consider the history and geography that Paul's writing into. It's, it's never safe to open a book of the Bible and say, what does this mean for me? Until we first said, what did it mean for the original readers, okay? We need to understand what was happening then uh, before we begin applying this book to our lives. So Paul says, I'm writing to these saints who are in Ephesus, now, if you go back and look, if you are a scholar and you love to study how translations of Bibles happen, when you go back and look at the oldest known manuscripts of the book of Ephesians, those two words, in Ephesus, are not in the oldest manuscripts. Did you know that? The oldest manuscripts, there's, there's actually a space there. So it says, uh, to the saints who are and are faithful in Christ, there's a blank there. Most scholars believe that this letter was probably meant to be a circular letter. It probably did go to Ephesus. In fact, we know it did. Later, we'll find that out. Uh, but it was supposed to probably be passed along. My guess is, and this is just a guess, that when the Ephesian church received this letter, they just went ahead and wrote their name in there uh, to the saints who were in Ephesus before they passed it on, and it became known as uh, the book uh, to the Ephesians. There's no mention of any specific individuals, which is uh, what was normal when Paul was writing to a specific church. Uh, there's no mention of any specific 
problems encountered by this church. There's no localized issues or mention. It's very broad in its applicability. So likely it went to Ephesus, it took on that name, and then made its rounds uh, to some other churches. But Ephesus, the city that it took on its name, uh, ancient Ephesus was located about four miles inland in what is now western Turkey. It was a major city. It had a population estimated anywhere from 200,000 to 500,000 people. So this was a, a, a decent-sized city. It was most popular for its worship of the goddess Artemis, or Diana, if you're looking, depending Greek or Roman gods, for centuries, much of the life of Ephesus revolved around the temple of Artemis. They built this magnificent temple there to this goddess. The, the temple had an area slightly larger than one of our American football fields. So this is a, this is a gigantic uh, temple. It was supported by 127 columns all around that were 60 feet high and six feet in diameter, all of marble, cypress wood paneling, cedar roof beams finished out the interior. That temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the world. The ancient world would come here to Ephesus and worship this goddess Artemis. Why here in Ephesus? Well, there was a giant rock that fell out of the sky, probably a meteorite, fell out of the sky, and they believed that it was an image of the goddess Artemis dropped there by the gods. And so that's where they built the temple. And so this entire area was known for worship of Artemis. The, the, the economy revolved around and was dependent upon the sale of trinkets and little idols. We'll, we'll find out later how that became an issue uh, in this city. There wasn't as much temple prostitution here like there was in the city of Corinth, if you're familiar with there, but what was happening in Ephesus is there was a lot of magic going on here. There were a lot of charlatans, there were a lot of magicians, there were a lot of sorcerers that found open arms and a welcome here in this bustling, thriving city. In fact, if you go back and read in Acts chapter 19, you find out that when the magicians of Ephesus became Christians, they all brought their books together and they burned them, uh, probably in the, in the city square. And Luke tells us in, in Acts 19, those books that they burned were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That's important if you know that one day's wages equaled one piece of silver. So if you do the math on 50,000 pieces of silver, that day when they burned those books, they burned the equivalent of 136 years of wages. That's how powerful the gospel was as it enters into the city. But it also indicates how prevalent the magic was. There's a lot of stuff going on here in the city when, when Paul shows up. Besides the Temple of Artemis, they had a gigantic library there and they had a theater there that set 25,000 spectators. Ephesus was regarded in this time and age as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. Its importance ranked only behind Rome and Athens. So you had Rome, Athens, and Ephesus. So it makes sense how strategic Paul was when he went to the city. 
He knew if he got into this city and he targeted this city with the gospel, the word of Jesus could spread in ways that it couldn't on the countryside. On on Paul's second missionary journey was the first time that he touched base in Ephesus and he was only there for a couple days. And it was on his third missionary journey that he comes back to Ephesus and that time he spends about three years with this new uh, church teaching and preaching and discipling the new believers. That was about an A.D. 50. This book of Ephesians that we're studying now, Paul wrote it about 10 years later. He's sitting in prison now in Rome Uh, Somewhere between A.D. 60 and A.D. 62, Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians to remind them again of the wonderful beauty of the gospel and how they should continue to live that out in this new organism called the church. And it's interesting to me that as Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians, how often he uses the word love. He talks to them about the love of God. He talks to them about love of spouse. He talks to them about love of fellow believer. He talks to them about love of their children, so on and so forth. I wonder if 10 years later, Paul already had an inkling that this church was on the verge of losing their first love. Because we read in Revelation chapter 2 that Jesus writes a letter to this church as well. And when Jesus writes a letter to the Ephesian believers, he commends them for keeping out the false teachers. But do you remember what it is that Jesus reprimands them for? For losing their first love. Jesus tells them in Revelation chapter 2, if you don't repent and come back to that first love, I will remove your lampstand. That that was words meaning, I will cause you to cease to exist as a church. And do you know that ancient Ephesus was destroyed once in AD 263, and it was destroyed again in AD 614, this time to never be rebuilt. The church of ancient Ephesus no longer exists. Because they lost their first love. One of the things that Paul was so adamant about writing to them. And before we go on any further, let me just ask you a question. If Jesus were to write you a letter today, what would he say to you? The beauty of Ephesians is that it's a love letter of God to these believers and a response of their love to him. Should be, right? The the bearings of Ephesians is that it's set in a culture that's known for magic. It's known for a lifestyle of goddess worship, paganism. So what about the beneficiaries? Who is Paul writing to? Go back to to verse 1. Look look what he says. I'm writing to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. He calls them two things. He calls them saints and he calls them faithful in Christ Jesus. So let's look at both of them. Do you know what a saint is other than a member of a football team in New Orleans, okay? Uh, What is a saint? Uh, Typically, when you and I think of saints, we think of extra holy people. 
We think of people who, by some virtue of their merit, have achieved some extraordinary level of goodness or holiness. If you grew up in a Roman Catholic uh, background, uh, you've been taught that saints are dead people who have uh, performed two miracles post-mortem and have been venerated by the church. They've been acknowledged as a church, uh, as a saint. Well, Paul here is writing to living people, okay? So the saints are not dead. They're very much alive. Uh, saints means simply to be set apart. It means to be set apart to something. It means to be dedicated to something, to be consecrated to something. In this case, Paul is using the words to say, these are individuals who have been set apart by God for Jesus. These are living saints who have never performed a miracle, but they have certainly experienced a miracle in the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so the word saint is simply a word that's used in the New Testament to describe a believer, someone who is saved by Jesus Christ. So you and I, if you are a believer in Jesus, you are a saint. Isn't that special? You are a saint. It describes your position. It describes an indicative. It describes a state of being. You have been set apart by God. Not because you were so good. In fact, that's not it at all. You were set apart by God because God declared you to be his own special possession. Now catch this, because this is important as you understand this book of Ephesians and, and the beautiful layout of this book of Ephesians. That which God declares to be special, saints, he then commands them to be what he's called them to be. When God declares us to be saints, he then commands us to live that out. In other words, in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Ephesians, God says, you are holy. And then in 4, 5, and 6, he says, now live like holy people. Okay? In chapters 1, 2, and 3, he says, you have been set apart for a new kingdom. You are a saint. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, now live according to new kingdom values. Chapters 1, 2, and 3, he says, you have been chosen, you have been loved, you've been predestined, adopted, blessed, redeemed, forgiven, sealed. All those words show up in those first three chapters. And then verses 4, 5, and 6, he says, now live it out for the praise of the glory of God the Father. You see how that works? Paul here is writing to the saints who are in Ephesus. He also calls them who are faithful in Christ Jesus. One pastor put it like this. It's kind of like looking at the same group of people from two different angles. From God's side, believers are those whom he has made holy, which is the meaning of saints. From man's side, believers are those who are faithful, who have trusted in Christ Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So you have two different angles. Paul says, you are saints because God said you're holy, and you are believers, uh, you're faithful because you're living out that holiness. So these are saints, but they are saints in Ephesus. If Paul were writing to you and I today, he would say, to the saints who are in Sarasota. You and I have a foot in two different kingdoms. We are part of the kingdom of Christ, 
by virtue of repenting of our sins and believing in him and spiritually, we reside in the heavenlies. In, in, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says when we repent, we reside in the heavenlies. But physically, we're still here in Sarasota, Florida, right? So we are to live out our spiritual reality in our physical reality. We are to live as saints here in Florida. We are now ambassadors of a new kingdom. It's like, it's like Bethel is an embassy, place here in Sarasota, and we're members of the kingdom of God, and God sends us here, and he says, now you be my ambassadors. You're in the world, but you're not of the world. You're representing me, a new kingdom, right? That, that's what the, the church is. And, and as you live out this church, Paul says, uh, by the spirit of God, you live it out in love, in unity, he says, because in the churches where the hostility was broken down between Jew and Gentile, husband and wife, parent, child, master and servant, you're one body, one love, one unity, and you're all walking in step to share the one gospel of the new king, Jesus, to the world. That is breathtaking. The problem is you and I don't always get that right, do we? We don't always have perfect love between one another as husband and wife or as members of a church or as parents and children. So we need Paul's instruction here. How do I do that, Paul? How do I live out the sainthood that has been bestowed upon me? Okay, so you and I get to be the beneficiaries by extension of this letter that was written to the Ephesian saints. So we're going to apply it to the Sarasota saints as well. So let's conclude with this one. We, we've looked at the beauty of Ephesians, how it's kind of laid out. We've kind of got our bearings straight with the Ephesian letter. We've looked briefly at the beneficiaries, and we'll dig into all of these more as we study. But let's finish up by looking at the blessings that Paul says are the Ephesians. And by extension, you and I. Verse 2, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ two of the most refreshing words in all of the Bible. Grace and peace. Grace and peace. It's a double blessing from a double source. Notice he says grace and peace, two blessings from a double source, God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. Grace is that undeserved kindness, that favor of God toward you. And when we get into chapter two, we will see that it is grace that saved you from a spiritual death you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead people don't make a lot of good choices. In fact, dead people don't make any choices at all. And in God's grace toward you, in his love toward you, he made you alive together with Christ. It says in, in chapter two, God raised you up in new life and he sat you in the heavenlies with Jesus. That is glorious grace. And if it were not for the grace of God, you and I would continue what we sung earlier. We would continue on our hell-bound race directly into the wrath of God. But when God stepped in and gave us that ultimate act of love toward us, he offered his son to die for us. It was his grace that did that. That is a wonderful blessing. And now, when you and I repent of our sin, when we believe in this Jesus Christ, we, we count the cost and we say it's worth it. There's nothing more worthy than Jesus Christ. From that grace of God flows to us now peace that 
surpasses all understanding. Peace with God, first of all, and then peace with our fellow man. Peace with God in that we no longer stand under his just condemnation. We're forgiven by him. We stand under his fatherly acceptance now. Our consciences are salved. The penalty of sin has been removed. And so we have peace with him. We also have peace in this world. That doesn't mean everything is going to go smooth and without trouble. What that means is, in spite of any circumstance I face in life, I can experience fullness and wholeness and satisfaction. The peace of God. In the Old Testament, there was a word, it's called shalom. That's the word that carries over into the New Testament. Those are our blessings, grace and peace. And as we study through this book, we're going to learn what that really means in all of its glory and all of its beauty. And then how do we live that out? So we'll pause for now. We'll stop for now. We're going to celebrate the, the Lord's table together. We're going to celebrate communion together. And I, I just love it. We, we didn't plan it this way, but it's the way it worked out that on this first day that we look at this book of Ephesians and think about God's grace toward us, we get to celebrate communion. That is so neat. Let me pray uh, as we close this and we'll pick it up, Lord willing, uh, next week. Let me pray. Father God, thank you for this book that was preserved for our edification, for your glory. God, it is really mind-boggling that you would even stoop to acknowledge sinners like us, people who would rebel against you, people who had no thought for you, and yet, even before time began, you set into plan, or set into motion this plan that was carried out by your son Jesus and the Holy Spirit took that finished work of Jesus and convicted our hearts. You stepped in and you changed the course of our history. You gave us your grace. You gave us your peace. We are eternally grateful. And why did you do that? Because it makes you look great. It shows your glory. It shows you in all of your spectacular brilliance, in your mercy, in your grace, and in your forgiveness and in your love. It shows all of these attributes and more. And so, Father, even as we open up this book and begin studying together, I pray that the beauty of the gospel would shine through in such a way that we just fall in love with you all over again. Some of us here may have lost our first love. We might have been passionate at one time, we might have been where the Ephesians were when, you, when Paul first showed up and they were on fire and they were burning their books of magic and they were telling the gospel. And maybe like the Ephesian believers over time, they were going through the right practices and they were holding to the right truth, but they just kind of lost that love. Father, I pray that that's not us, but if there are some here today, I pray as we study the truths that you've laid out for us here that it would reignite that passion, reignite that, that love in our soul, that you would be so kind and gracious, merciful to us. We love you. We thank you for your gift. In Jesus' name.